Good afternoon. I'm Dr. James Brooks, the Melanie Trent de Shutter Library Director here at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, and I'm delighted to welcome you to this noontime lecture. We wish to acknowledge the generosity of our former trustee, Anne Worrell, who endowed this lecture series in honor of our former president and CEO, Dr. Charles Bryan. Just before we get started to, with today's program, I just want to make you aware of a couple of events that we have coming up at the museum. So join us here tomorrow at 6 p.m. for a special conversation with Leland, Melville, uh, Leland Melvin and Dr. Robert Satcher, two Virginia astronauts who worked together as mission specialists at the International Space Station in 2009. Together, they will discuss the legacy of black astronauts as they explore this often overlooked history and look ahead to Victor Glover's forthcoming mission aboard Artemis II, which will mark the first time a black astronaut has orbited the moon. And on November 4th, come along for our inaugural History Matters Symposium, a day full of talks and tours by historians and practitioners from across the Commonwealth around the theme of discovery. The day will end with a special keynote lecture by Colonial Williamsburg's Director of Archaeology, Jack Gary. And before we begin with today's program, I'd just like to uh, remind you all just to check your phones to make sure they're switched to silent or switched off. The US Marine Corps' fighting spirit and effectiveness is widely known, but few are aware of the Corps' humble beginnings and its achievements during the early years of the revolution. Through successes and failures up and down the eastern seaboard, the opening years of the war saw the American military develop the Continental Marines as an effective force in service aboard naval, naval vessels, in amphibious operations, and in support of the Army in land warfare. Washington's Marines is the first complete study to entwine together the men, strategy, performance, and personalities of the Marines' formative years into a single study. Today's speaker knows the Marine Corps inside out. Major General Jason Q. Bohm is a Marine with more than 30 years of service. An infantryman by trade, he is commanded at every level from platoon commander to commanding general. Jason has also served in several key staff positions, including as a strategic planner with the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the director of the Marine Corps Expeditionary Warfare School, Marine Corps Office of Legislative Affairs, and Chief of Staff of the U.S. Naval, Naval Striking and Support Forces for NATO. He holds master's degrees in military studies and in national security studies, and has written articles for the Marine Corps Gazette and won several writing awards from the Marine Corps Association. He is the author of From Cold War to ISIL, One Marine's Journey, and Washington's Marines, The Origins of the Corps and the American Revolution, 1775 to 1777, which is the subject of today's talk. So please join me in wel welcoming Major General Jason Q. Bohm. All right, well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, or afternoon now. And uh, let me just say what an absolute honor it is for me to be here today. And I want to thank Dr. Brooks and Mr. Dozer for the very kind invitation and allow me to come here today and for the personal time and attention they've given me as very gracious hosts this morning. Uh, if you were one of my Marine Corps units right now, I'd be telling all of you in the back to get up and get front and center here and consolidate our forces. But since you're a little bit more senior crowd, I think we'll allow you to stay right where you are. But uh, I am really encouraged by the number of you that have joined us today. Uh, that tells me that you're lovers of American history, and that's near and dear to my heart. And today, without making a political statement, that's more important than ever. And as we get ready to approach the 250th anniversary of the birth of our great nation, I can't think of a better time to reconnect with our history and to be able to understand it, to put it into context of what we're dealing with today. So thank you. Thank you for being here today. Uh, before I start, I must say that anything I speak about today is my own personal opinion based off of my own research, and it does not represent the official position of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, uh, Department of the Navy, or the United States Marine Corps. Fair enough? All right. This is Bohm's take on the world. Okay. So, again, thank you for being here. We're going to take a little bit of a journey here to tell you about the birth of our great nation and then how the Marine Corps came into existence 
in the context of those times. And it really is a parallel journey that we have both went on uh, during this time. And as you heard Dr. Brooks talk about, you know, many people are familiar with the very honorable service and the selfless sacrifice and war fighting prowess of United States Marines. And very many people are familiar with this iconic image of the flag raising at where? Iwo Jima, Mount Suribachi, and that great quote by our former president, Ronald Reagan. But a lot of people really don't know about our humble beginnings and what resulted in the need for a Marine Corps. Men and future women who could fight on land and sea. And then in today's environment, there's actually five domains of war. Back then, land and sea. Then we added air. Now we have space, cyber, and we just added information. And you think about how information is used as a tool of war today. Just watch what's going on with Hamas and Israeli forces in Israel. Okay, so let's jump right in. So the roots of the American Revolution can be traced back to the French and Indian War from 1756 to 1763, in which England, France, and Spain vied for control of the North American continent. And though the British and Americans prevailed, this victory was, uh, and providing for the enduring defense of the American colonies came at a very high cost. The mother country thought it only right that the colonists bear their fair share of cost, particularly since Americans were only paying about 120th of the taxes being paid by those back in England. But the independently minded Americans pushed back on several imposed taxes, particularly when levied without proper representation in the government. And although neither country sought a war, conflict was inevitable. And as you see in the image here on the, on the left-hand side, that is a British tax collector being tarred and feathered by Sons of Liberty. That conflict began on April 19, 1775 in the upper right-hand corner when Captain John Parker formed a company of Minutemen on the Lexington Green to face off against 700 British soldiers and Marines. Before the day was done, the Americans had placed the British in Boston under siege. But this victory on land was only half the equation. America is a maritime nation with an extensive coastline and countless lakes, rivers, and canals that can be used to quickly move people and things. America would need men who could fight and win on land and sea if it hoped to defeat one of the world's most powerful armed forces. This became evident in mid-June 1775 during an event that author James Finnemore Cooper referred to as the Lexington of the Sea. At the time, principal British supplies and reinforcements had to travel 3,000 miles across the Atlantic Ocean. This proved to be timely, it was expensive, and it was dangerous. So British leadership sought closer local solutions, and they used the West Indies, which is now known as the Caribbean, the Southern colonies, and the area between Boston and Nova Scotia, which would be future, uh, become the future state of Maine. British Admiral Graves at the time sent two merchant vessels loaded with flour and other food supplies and guarded by the armed schooner Margareta to the town of Machias, Massachusetts, future Maine, in the area. And that's the picture you see depicted in the middle. Local patriots captured the two merchant vessels, but the Mar Margareta escaped. And the Americans grabbed pitchforks and muskets, boarded the merchantman, and gave chase. The, uh, the resultant Battle of Margareta, or also known as the Battle of Machias, uh, became the first American naval victory and the first naval fight of the American Revolution. Four days later, Colonel William Prescott led approximately 1,600 Americans up Breeds Hill, not Bunker Hill, but Breeds Hill on the Charleston Peninsula, resulting in a British victory, but at a very high cost. Three days later, George Washington assumed command of the Continental Army outside of Boston. The immediacy of the crisis at Boston focused the Continental Congress's efforts on first establishing the Army. But it would soon need 
to address the need for a Navy and for Marines. Not possessing either at the time, Congress leveraged a temporary stopgap in the use of privateers or sanctioned pirates in which private merchantmen were converted into warships and manned by civilian crews to capture British shipping on the high seas. Privateers had some positive impact in capturing British supplies, but many were in the business for personal gain. Their actions were rarely coordinated with ground forces and Washington had no control over them. In fact, they became a draw on the manpower and resources that would later be needed by the Continental Army, Navy, and Marines. Washington quickly realized that the privateers alone were insufficient to blockade the British in Boston, being resupplied and reinforced from overseas. So at a necessity, he created his own Navy using soldiers to fill the role of sailors and Marines. Colonel John Glover from Marblehead, Massachusetts, provided Washington with his first ship that you see depicted here and named it the Hana in uh, recognition of Glover's wife. Washington's Navy soon grew to six ships. And although they had some early success, the challenges associated with building a pickup team like this soon came to the forefront. One of Washington's agents described the situation this way, and I quote, the people on board the Brigantine Washington are in general discontent and have agreed to do no duty on board said ships and say that they enlisted to serve in the army and not as Marines. Benedict Arnold, and you see Arnold's Navy in the lower left-hand corner depicted, or excuse me, right-hand side depicted there. He had a similar experience a year later when he was assigning soldiers to man a freshwater fleet that he built on Lake Champlain in upstate New York to fight what would become the Battle of Belcour Island to block British advances coming south from Canada. And uh, Arnold describes his folks this way. We have a wretched motley crew, the Marines, the refuse of every regiment, and the seamen, few of them ever wet with salt water. Recognizing these challenges, Congress was forced to act when it received an intelligence report on the 5th of October, 1775. The report said that there were two unprotected vessels moving from England filled with reinforcements and resupplies going to Quebec. So Congress assigned a committee of three consisting of John Adams from New York, John Langdon from New Hampshire, and Silas Dean from Connecticut to devise a plan to have Washington capture these two vessels. They developed a plan in which they tasked Washington with purchasing two merchant ships, converting them into warships and capturing these two vessels. The committee of three briefed the full Congress on the 13th of October, making this the official birthday of the continental and future United States Navy. So Washington had difficulty finding the ships in New England. But thanks to the lucrative privateer business, there were no ships available up north. So he recommended that the Congress look a little further south. So five merchant ships were eventually purchased and converted into warships in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The Navy now had its first fleet, five converted merchant ships that were loaded and manned with cannons but now it needed an admiral to command it. And they selected this gentleman, Isaac Hopkins, 57 year old from Providence, Rhode Island, who served as a privateer captain during the French and Indian War. Now Hopkins established the largest of the five merchant vessels, the Alfred, as his flagship that you see depicted in this painting. And he identified a young sailor named John Paul Jones to be the first lieutenant for the Navy's first flagship. And some gentlemen were asking about the flags earlier. As the first fleet prepared to sail in January of 1776, it raised two flags on the Alfred. Congress had approved the Grand Union flag that you see in the lower left here as the official flag of the United Colonies on the 3rd of December, 1775, in advance of the Declaration of Independence. 
and Congressman Christopher Gatson of South Carolina and a member of the newly now expanded Marine Committee presented John Paul Jones with the flag you see in the lower right-hand side of the slide, famously known today as the Gatson flag, which was approved on the 20th of December, 1775. So although Congress had established a Navy, it failed to establish the Marines to serve beside it until another fateful event occurred. On November 2nd, 1775, the citizens of Passamaquoddy, Nova Scotia, fueled American hopes of Canada joining the struggle against the mother country as a 14th colony. The Committee of Safety from Passamaquoddy petitioned Congress to allow its admission into, I quote, the Association of the North Americans for the Preservation of Their Rights and Liberties. Congress responded by commissioning the first Continental Marine officer three days later, this gentleman, Samuel Nicholas, that you see depicted here. On November 5th, Samuel Nicholas became the first and therefore the senior ranking Marine officer when president of the Continental Congress at the time, John Hancock, signed his commission. Many mistakenly point to this as designate Nicholas as the first commandant of the Marine Corps. But that's not true because Congress did not bestow that title on the commandant until 1798 during the quasi-war against France after the American Revolution. Nicholas was a 31-year-old Philadelphia native. He was born a Quaker and his father died when he was seven years old. He attended the Academy of Philadelphia, which became the future University of Pennsylvania, and graduated at the age of 16, after which he became a merchant and owner of the Conestoga Wagon Tavern in downtown Philadelphia, starting a trend of Marines being affiliated with alcohol that remains strong to this day. And any of you Marines out there know what I'm talking about. But Nicholas would honorably serve as a senior Marine throughout the war from 1775 through 1783. Being the first Marine, Nicholas also became the first Marine recruiter. Following the note from Passamaquoddy, Congress energized the Marine Committee, now increased to five members by adding John Jay from New York and Stephen Hopkins from Rhode Island. Recognize that last name? Nepotism was alive and well. The first fleet admiral, Hopkins, was a brother of the congressman. Uh, they met on the second story room of this building you see depicted on the slide. That is Tun Tavern, which is commonly accepted as the birthplace of the United States Marines today. In fact, I was sharing with Dr. Brooks how uh, that building no longer exists in Philadelphia. There's just a historical marker on the site where it lay but there are gentlemen that have purchased land in very close proximity to the original location that are now rebuilding an exact replica of Tun Tavern and hope to have that complete by the 250th anniversary. On Passamaquoddy's advice, Congress developed a plan for Marines to conduct a naval campaign to capture the British principal naval base located in Halifax, Nova Scotia. The committee presented its recommendation to the full Congress on the 9th of November, and the following day, Congress resolved, I quote, that two battalions of Marines be raised, that they be distinguished by the names of the 1st and 2nd Battalion of American Marines, making the 10th of November the official birthday of the United States Marines, which is celebrated by Marines regardless of where they are in the world, regardless of what their circumstances are, they still celebrate the birth of our Corps today. And as, again, I shared with Dr. Brooks earlier how I distinctly recall being in a combat situation. We didn't have the opportunity to have a full ball with a large birthday cake. So I took one of my, my what we call meals ready to eat processed field rations, had a pound cake in it, took that little pound cake out, put a match in it and lit it. And we sang happy birthday to the Marine Corps. That's what Marines do. So Congress directed Washington in order to form these two battalions of Marines to cherry pick soldiers out of his battalions holding the British under siege in Boston 
those sail, uh, soldiers that may have had any type of maritime experience, like John Glover's folks that he used to create his own Navy outside of Boston. But Washington was facing his own challenges at the time, so he balked at the idea. He also balked at the idea of leading an expedition up to capture Halifax. He had his hands full and challenges galore. differently than the two battalions they originally envisioned in order to have them be able to easily transition from fighting at sea to fighting ashore. So they organized their first Marines into 10 companies of 50 Marines each. One company of 50 Marines could be assigned to an individual ship as the Marine detachment on board that ship. If required to do limited operations ashore, they could task organize those 50-man companies into larger battalions to fight ashore. And that's, in fact, what would happen in support of George Washington during the 10 crucial days, which we'll talk about here in a moment. Nicholas led the effort to recruit five companies to man the fleet's first five ships, and he took personal command of the Marine detachment on board the Alfred, the flagship. A snapshot of Lieutenant Isaac Craig's Marine Detachment on the ship Andrew Duria uh, provides a good profile of a Continental Marine company in 1775. Craig's company consisted of 40 Marines, few of which were born in America. They were mostly immigrants from Great Britain, Ireland, Holland, Switzerland, and Germany. All but one of the Marines was recruited from Philadelphia. Their average age was 25 and a half years old, with the youngest being 18 and the oldest being 40. Their average height was five foot six, with the shortest Marine being five, three and a half inches and the tallest being six foot. And the Marines brought a wealth of background and experience to their unit. They included carpenters, masons, barbers, bakers, cabinet makers, coopers, jewelers, brass founders, tailors, butchers, painters, weavers, wool combers, Millers, laborers, servants, and a single doctor. So the American fleet set sail on its inaugural cruise on January 4th, 1776. In all, the fleet at this time consisted of seven ships armed with 110 cannons manned by 680 sailors and 234 Marines. Now Hopkins, the admiral, had two sets of orders when he set sail. He opened up the first set of orders and it basically told uh, him what the Congress's expectations of the good order and discipline of the fleet would be and how they were to perform their duties. One of the principal duties of the Marines with the fleet is to maintain good order and discipline. The second set of orders, though, identified several ambitious and, quite frankly, unrealistic tasks. Hopkins was to immediately set course for the Chesapeake Bay where he was to locate, capture, or destroy the British fleet located there. Now think about this. This is the most powerful Navy in the world, manning ships of war with nearly 100 cannons in their top-line vessels. We had seven converted merchant ships. If that was not enough, once he was complete in destroying the British fleet off of the Virginia coast, he was then to proceed down to the Carolinas where he was to do the same thing, locate the fleet down there and destroy that fleet. And if that were not enough, once that was complete, he was to shoot back up north, engage the fleet, hovering off of the Rhode Island coast and destroy that fleet as well. So, you know, however, as Hopkins was reading these orders, he found that there was a caveat in his orders that he hoped to exploit. It stated, I quote, if bad winds or stormy weather or any other unforeseen accident or disaster disable you so to do, you are then to follow such course as your best judgment shall suggest. Well, Hopkins wisely chose to use his better judgment and determined to follow his own plan. He had earlier received an intelligence report 
that there was gunpowder and weapons being held down in the Bahamas at a place called New Providence. And New Providence was once very heavily defended, and it consisted of two forts, Fort Matangao, uh, guarding the eastern approaches to Nassau, and Fort Nassau guarding the western approaches to Nassau, which was the capital of New Providence. Now, events on the North American continent had weakened the island's defenses when its regiment of regulars was sent north to reinforce British forces fighting in America. Governor Montford Brown, who was the governor of New Providence, established a 300-man militia force, and he had one small schooner, the St. John, for protection. Now, Hopkins tasked Samuel Nicholas with capturing both of these forts with 220 Marines and 50 sailors. Unfortunately, the fleet was discovered before the raid, and Brown had most of the gunpowder shipped to eastern Florida before the Marines landed. Regardless, Nicholas led the Marines in a successful raid, and they captured both forts with 88 cannons, 15 mortars, and an abundance of ordnance. And of note, this exceeds the number of guns transported by Henry Knox from Fort Ticonderoga to Washington outside of Boston. It's just that they were a thousand miles south of Boston and Knox arrived with his cannons before the Marines and sailors arrived with theirs. But nonetheless, those cannons were used effectively throughout the rest of the war. And in addition to that, Governor Brown at the time attempted to escape during the raid, and he was placed on house arrest and guarded by Marines. He later complained that the Marines, and I quote, used at discretion all of my wines and other liquors as they did everything else they had occasion for. You know, now Hopkins loaded Brown and the prizes captured by the Marines, and he departed for Rhode Island. Brown was later used in a prisoner exchange to secure the release of American General John Sullivan, who had been captured during the Battle of Long Island earlier. As they were moving north towards Rhode Island, they understood that strategically this first amphibious operation conducted by the Navy and Marines had other benefits. Uh, what it did achieve was it forced the British to employ their naval forces over a much broader area in order to protect its other holdings across the world because the Marines and sailors demonstrated they could strike them where and when they wanted. That's the great advantage of naval forces. As the fleet headed north, the British sent the force up the Delaware River to test the American defenses protecting Philadelphia, trying to use their advantage of maneuver of the seas. This resulted in a second stage of recruitment of sailors and Marines, which included a gentleman named Robert Mullen. Mullen was the owner of the Tun Tavern, the official birthplace of the Marines. This is also the time when a gentleman named John Martin, otherwise known as Cato, became the first African-American Marine recruited in April of 1776. Now, Hopkins captured several British merchant vessels on their way to Rhode Island, but he got in a tough battle against a British frigate that's depicted in this painting. Uh, the frigate was known as the Glasgow, and it resulted in the death of Second Lieutenant John Fitzpatrick of Nicholas's Marine Detachment. And you see that being depicted in this painting on board the Alfred, making this the first Marine killed in combat during the American Revolution and therefore in our history. On arriving in Rhode Island, Hopkins and Nicholas, uh, excuse me, Hopkins sent Nicholas back to Philadelphia with dispatches for the Congress, giving him the word about the successful raid in New Providence. Congress promoted Nicholas on the spot to major, and they assigned him with recruiting four new companies of Marines. <clears throat> excuse me. These companies of Marines were to man the Marine detachments on four of the 13 original frigates that the Congress had authorized to be built to fight the war. These are warships being built from the keel up, the first in the United States Navy. Those warships' plans were dispersed across the major seaports of the eastern seaboard, four of them, the Washington, the Delaware, the Effingham, and the Randolph were being constructed in Philadelphia. 
Nicholas was assigned to recruit those four companies of Marines to man those four ships. Well, in the meantime, and I apologize, this may be a little difficult to see, but in the meantime, Washington shifts his army to New York. The British evacuated Boston, and now Washington is being challenged once again and not having a credible naval force, which would play to his disadvantage. What do you notice about this map here? This is Manhattan Island, and this is uh, New Jersey and Long Island. What do you notice about this area? There's a lot of water. And who controls the waterways can control the war and the battle. So once again, we don't have a credible Navy to be able to engage the Royal Navy. So Washington does what he did before. He created his own Navy using soldiers to serve in the role of sailors and Marines. Unfortunately, it was never adequate to be able to meet the needs. And when Isaac Hopkins took the fleet up into Rhode Island, they were blockaded by a British fleet located up there. So they were not uh, successful in assisting with the fight for New York. By mid-August of 1776, the British had assembled a massive force of 32,000 troops supported by a fleet of 10,000 sailors, 2,000 Marines, manned hundreds of vessels armed with over 1,200 cannons. Washington had 19,000 green troops, militiamen that had been formed into units to become soldiers and no Navy or Marines. The outcome was predictable. The Army faced a string of defeats starting with the Battle of Long Island in August. Washington achieved a slight victory in the Battle of Harlem Heights in September, only to defeat, uh, face defeat again at White Plains in October. Arnold fought valiantly up in upstate New York during the Battle of Balcor Island that same month, but the Americans faced a devastating defeat at Fort Washington in November, followed by the loss of Fort Lee in New Jersey that same month. And Washington at this time is now being pursued by British forces across New Jersey until the 8th of December when he crosses the Delaware River south into Pennsylvania. To make matters worse, General Grant of the British forces captured Newport, Rhode Island that same month. So this is a difficult time for the Continental forces. Disease, desertion, casualties, terminating enlistments had all dwindled Washington's 19,000 troops with those that are accompanying him south of the Delaware River to about 2,500. Something needed to be done to change the tide of war. And Washington knew he had to seize the initiative back from the British or the war could be lost. But he needed more troops. Enter Washington's Marines. So Washington's Marines actually consisted of four separate and distinct groups. I already mentioned to you that Washington had soldiers uh, fill in the role of Marines, as depicted here by that picture of John Glover that you see in the left-hand side. And I mentioned that there were many privateers out there as well. Privateers were serving in the role of Marines as well, particularly on some of the larger ships. An example of this is a gentleman named William Shippen. William Shippen was a 27-year-old merchant from Philadelphia and the father of four. He started the war as a privateer before assuming command of the Marine Detachment on board the Pennsylvania State Navy's flagship, the Montgomery. Each of the separate states had their own navies as well because the Continental Congress had not yet uh, been able to acquire the resources to build a national navy. With the British and their Hessian allies now on Philadelphia's doorstep, Shippen went ashore to fight beside the Continental Marines as a member of the Philadelphia Militia Unit known as the Associators. Unfortunately, Shippen would be killed in the Battle of Princeton in the coming weeks, making him the first state Marine to be killed in the war. The Pennsylvania Navy consisted of 48 vessels of varying sizes to include two floating batteries called the Arnold and the Putnam, each with 12 18-pound cannons manned exclusively 
by Pennsylvania State Marines, like you see in this center photo. That is 29-year-old Thomas Forrest, who received a commission in the Pennsylvania Marines in March of 76. He commanded the Arnold until transferred on October 5th to the Pennsylvania State Artillery to command his own company. Now, Forrest would play a critical role in the upcoming battles. And the gentleman you see on the right is Andrew Porter. Andrew Porter was a schoolmaster in Philadelphia when he received his commission as a Continental National Marine. Many of the Marines in his company were reportedly his current or previous students. Now, Porter commanded the Marine detachment on board the frigate Effingham and would fight as a company commander under Samuel Nicholas in the coming battles. But there's an interesting story about this gentleman. A bit of trivia about Porter is that he later resigned his Marine commission to take on a full-time Army commission as an artillery officer. And I'll tell you how that happened in a moment. But just let it be known that while he was serving as an Army officer, there was another Army officer named Major Eustace who called him out one day and said, Ah, Porter, you are nothing but a damn schoolmaster. And Porter drew his sword out and said, I have not forgotten my vocation, sir, and struck him in the back with the flat of the sword. Does anybody know what that designates? It's a call out to a duel. You, you are disgracing me and I'm calling you out. So they met on the corner of 9th and Arch Streets in downtown Philadelphia. They drew pistols and boom, Porter shoots Eustace right through the heart and kills him on the spot. And because of that, he was court-martialed, thinking his career was over. He was later exonerated, though, promoted to major, and then given the assignment of the gentleman he had just killed. So it all works out in the end. You know, don't mess with the Marine's honor. It doesn't end well for people. Okay, so Nicholas received his orders at this time from the Congress to consolidate the Marine detachments on those four vessels being constructed in Philadelphia to form a battalion and to move up the Delaware River to link up with George Washington to see how they can support the Continental Army in its greatest time of need. They get to the river and Washington is perplexed. He does not know how to deal with these Marines. But he has this gentleman named John Caldwalder. Caldwalder was the brigade commander for the Philadelphia militia known as the Associators, who also came upriver to join Washington in the army. So Washington turns to Caldwalder and he says, go talk to those Marines and find out whether they mean to fight on land or on the water. And Caldwalder says, they're going to fight for you, General. And Washington says, very well, sir. I place them under your command. The Continental Marines would fight as a separate and distinct battalion under the Philadelphia Associators during the 10 crucial days. So before arriving at the Delaware, Washington had the foresight to collect all the boats up the Delaware River for 70 miles upriver from Philadelphia. So when General Howe, who was pursuing Washington, leading the British forces, got to the Delaware, they made a feeble attempt to find boats, but there were none to be found. So he did what most European armies did during times of inclement weather. They went into winter quarters. On December 14, 1776, General Howe established 17 separate cantonments across eastern New Jersey. The areas closest to the Americans, and for reference, this is Trenton in the middle of the map, and this area that was closest to the Americans who were along the uh, shores of the Delaware were commanded by a Hessian officer named Colonel Carl von Donna. He housed his troops in the Burlington and Bordertown area. And then uh, one of his subordinates was a gentleman named Colonel Johann Rall, who commanded a brigade in Trenton proper. As the Hessians settled into their winter quarters, Washington began to gather what forces he could while seeking intelligence to plan an important stroke against the enemy. And Washington knew, again, he had to seize the initiative, otherwise the war may be lost. 
but he had three preconditions he wanted to meet before he could act. The first was that consolidation of forces. And not only did he have the associators and Marines come upriver from Philadelphia, which is down here in the bottom of the map, but he also assigned his Continental Forces under General Charles Lee and Horatio Gates to come down from New York and join him in, uh, in uh, Pennsylvania. He also needed favorable conditions on the ground, and he accomplished this through conducting several harassment raids to wear the Hessian forces down in the area, and the Marines participated in several of these raids. And the third thing he needed to do was to have the enemy make a mistake that he could exploit. And that occurred when militia forces under General Putnam were sent across the Delaware, causing Colonel Von Donop to pursue them towards the other shore across from Philadelphia. In doing that, what he did was he removed himself from being able to mutually support Rawl in Trenton. It was 22 miles away and a full day's march away, which provided Washington with a golden opportunity. So Washington came up with a four-phase plan to capture the uh, Hessians operating in Trenton. He would lead his main effort of 2,400 Continental soldiers with Thomas Forrest, the former Pennsylvania State Marine, and his uh, battery of artillery at, across McConkie's Ferry and do a nine-mile march to attack Rawl in Trenton from the north and from the west. And then he had three supporting efforts. The first one, and this is the history that no one knows, the first one was New Jersey and Pennsylvania militia who was supposed to cross right at Trenton and capture a key bridge across the Ossentunk Creek. That was to prevent Rawl from being able to escape once Washington attacked. Callwalder and Nicholas, with the Brigade of Philadelphia Associators and the Marines, were to cross in the Bristol area, and they were to establish blocking positions to prevent Von Donop from being able to reinforce Rawl once attacked. And then the final support and effort was putting him, sending more militia across from Philadelphia to fix Von Don up in place. Unfortunately, Washington's force was the only one of the four to successfully cross the Delaware River on Christmas Day. If you look, uh, obviously, this is the famous painting of the crossing of the Delaware. You see the ice and uh, snow forming on the river here. This is an actual picture of the Delaware River and what the conditions can look like at that time of year. So although Washington was able, with John Glover's help, get his force across, uh, the militia that was supposed to cross right where uh, Trenton Falls is located were facing conditions like this. They didn't even attempt it. The Marines and the Philadelphia Associators actually got two-thirds of their force across the river before a nor'easter hit, a blizzard came in and the conditions became so dangerous that Callwalder aborted the mission, bringing his forces back across to Philadelphia, uh, to Pennsylvania. He thought that no one else was able to successfully cross either. And then the final force down by Philadelphia was also unsuccessful in crossing. So the next morning, Callwalder's in the process of writing a note to Washington saying, hey, I'm sorry, none of us were able to get across the river. And all of a sudden, boom! He hears cannon going off in the direction of Trent. Son of a gun. Washington made it successfully across the river. So what does he do? The Marines are now animated. The Philadelphia Associators want to get in a fight. So they make the decision to cross back over into New Jersey to join Washington in the fight. Unfortunately, by the time they get over into the New Jersey side, Washington made the decision after successfully capturing nearly a thousand Hessians to cross back over into Philadelphia because he knows that there's about 10,000 British soldiers up in the Princeton area. So now Washington's on the south side of the river. Callwalder and the Marines are on the uh, northern side of the river. And what they are doing is they are now trying to take Von Donop's forces under pursuit who are retreating up towards Princeton where there's a British brigade holding out. Callwalder identifies that Washington has now recrossed into Philadelphia, into uh, Pennsylvania, excuse me. And so he starts to get cold feet and he wants to abort the mission again. The Marines are having none of it. His associators are having none of it. 
No, ask Washington to come back over the river and let's continue this fight. We have the advantage. We have the initiative. So Washington does make the decision to cross over once more into New Jersey and now wants to try and consolidate his forces to see how he might exploit the advantage they now have. And that results in a second battle known as the Second Battle of Trenton, or more commonly known as the Battle of Pink Creek. Washington recrossed the Delaware at the end of December, and he was able to now consolidate approximately 6,000 troops outside of Trenton to include the Continental Marines. But the Americans were not the only ones preparing for a fight, because Lord Cornwallis was directed by General Howe to assume overall command of approximately 10,000 troops outside of Princeton and attack and finally defeat the Americans now held up in Trenton. Now, the British's thought was the Delaware River had Washington boxed in in the Trenton area. And what Washington did was he used this natural barrier of the Ossonpink Creek to slow British forces and he occupied the high ground across the creek and for three miles upriver in order to block the British and make them attack him. And the strength lies in the defense because he has now dug in prepared positions and he's able to put nearly 40 cannons under the command of Henry Knox on the high ground overlooking this one key bridge at the Pink Creek. The Marines and Caldwell and the Associators are initially placed on the right flank to be able to block any British attempts to cross the creek upriver. And what Washington does to buy time in order to allow his forces to consolidate and dig in is he sends a gentleman named Edward Hand and Virginia and Maryland riflemen up north in order to conduct delaying tactics against the British as they depart. Princeton and fight their way south all the way to Trenton. And you can see these little bursts represent each of the engagement points where Edward Hand successfully delayed the British sufficiently to allow Washington to get his forces in place. The British and Hessians tried three times unsuccessfully that evening to force the bridge and to defeat the Americans. Dark sets in. They've taken several casualties. Cornwallis decides to pull back and occupy the high ground above Trenton. And he says, don't worry about it. We'll bag the fox in the morning. The fox being Washington. And one of Cornwallis's general officers, a gentleman named Erksine, says, General, if Washington's half the general I think he is, he won't be there in the morning. Cornwallis said, don't worry about it. But Erksine knew exactly uh, what uh, was up Washington's sleeve because Washington knew at this point he really had four choices to choose from. He could remain in place and the British would eventually cross over the creek at some point and knowing the British tactics would likely cross north and then roll the Americans flank with the Delaware blocking any escape. So he didn't want to do that. He could take the initiative and attack himself across the river, but the British outnumbered him 10,000 to 6,000. They could retreat further south towards Bordentown or Burlington, but the British would just pursue them and eventually catch them. And he had one other option. Does anybody know what it was? Attack deeper into enemy held territory. So what he does in the middle of the night using guise and deceit he leaves three to 400 men in these lines, making a racket like they're digging in their preparing positions and stoking the fires to make the British believe that the Americans are remaining in place. But in fact, what they do in the middle of the night and throughout the evening is they slowly pull their forces out and they start moving north. 11 miles further north is the town of Princeton. Remember, that's where Cornwallis came from. There's a brigade left there of approximately 14 to 1,500 men. Cornwallis gives that brigade the order to come south and join him for the final attack to defeat the Americans the next morning. And then uh, the U.S. had 
reconnaissance elements out and spies out at the time. And this map that you see hand drawn here was drawn by Caldwalder of the British defenses at Princeton based off of a spy's report. He provides this to Washington and Washington uses this to devise a plan for attack. So this route that you see depicted here is the Americans march 11 miles throughout the night. They have now been awake for nearly 40 hours without a hot meal in the middle of a blizzard. But they have to do what's necessary to continue to fight and keep the American Revolution alive. Washington's plan was you had Princeton located in this area where the British were held up. His plan was to split his forces, have General Nathaniel Green's division block a bridge here to prevent Cornwallis from coming back up from Trenton to reinforce this force while his main effort conducted a flanking attack on Princeton. Unfortunately, as the sun is beginning to rise, the Americans are moving up this sunken road along the creek bed and they see British forces just crossing this bridge and moving up this hill. That's the British brigade under a guy named Mawood that Cornwallis had ordered to come south to reinforce him for the final attack against Washington and Trenton. It's what we call in military terms a meeting engagement where two forces didn't expect to see each other, but now it's a matter of who can gain fire superiority first in order to get the advantage and win the battle. So what happens is a gentleman named Hugh Mercer takes his unit up and he engages the British here on the Princeton battlefield. Unfortunately, Mercer didn't know how many forces he was going up against, and he only sends about 100 folks up there, hundred, uh, as you were, 200, 100 riflemen and 100 infantrymen, but they're going up against 700 British forces. The British take the advantage and actually uh, shoot Mercer off of his horse. They bayonet him several times, and Mercer's brigade turns and starts to retreat. While that's happening, Caldwalder, the Associators, and the Continental Marines come out of the sunken road, and they hear the sound of battle, and they want to join the battle. They come up in this area, and they start to form with the Associators on the left and the Continental Marines on the right, and they start to move forward to engage the British. But just as they're doing that under enemy fire, Mercer's brigade is retreating right into their face creating confusion, and the forces start to fold and basically retreat back about 150 yards. At that decisive moment, General George Washington shows up on the scene. He was with the main force effort doing the flanking attack against Princeton, and he conveys uh, with, uh, confers with Walder and Nicholas and says, let's reorganize the men and attack. They listen to the general and the Continental Marines with those forces attack straight into the British with the help of now, excuse me, with the help now of Edward Hand's forces coming in from the right and General Mifflin's force coming in from the left, the British are overwhelmed and they retreat. The Americans win the Battle of Princeton, another huge and third critical battle in a short 10-day period that becomes known as the 10 Crucial Days which turns the tide of the war. Now, what happens at this moment? Okay. Uh, as the British forces are retreating, there's some holdouts that are left in this building here. Anybody know what that is? Nassau Hall, Nassau Hall in the University of Princeton. There are approximately 230 to 250 British soldiers held up here. And there's a young captain from New York named Alexandra Hamilton, who is a battery commander with the Continental Army, who sets his cannons up about right here and starts firing cannonballs straight into the front door to Nassau Hall. And the legend is that there was a painting of King George on the wall and one of the cannonballs decapitates the king. Whether true or not, I don't know, but it makes for a good story. Uh, militiamen rush the building, and the British here surrender, ending the Battle of Princeton. So, 
you the British sustained about 450 killed, wounded, captured, or missing, and the Americans only sustained about 30 casualties during the Battle of Princeton. And one of them, as a reminder, was William Shippen, the privateer Marine who is now fighting side by side with the Continental Marines. So as the battle ends, Washington, Henry Knox, who's in charge of the Continental Artillery and others, they wanted to continue the attack toward Brunswick, New Jersey, because they knew in Brunswick, that is where the British were holding Charles Lee, who had been captured earlier and had 70,000 pounds of sterling in a war chest that Washington critically needed. But his men have reached what we call the culminating point. A culminating point is that point that if you go beyond it, you will start to have diminishing returns. It could turn victory into a defeat. His men have been up for over 40 hours, no sleep. Many of them had no shoes. You've all heard the stories about being able to track their progress through the blood streams on the, on the snow-covered ground. So Washington made the wise choice. Instead of continuing to attack up to Brunswick, he takes a left instead of a right, and he goes up to Morristown, uh, New Jersey where he establishes winter quarters and he begins what's called the forage war against the British. The British had abandoned Eastern New Jersey and they're holding up now in three key cities in Northern New Jersey, close to New York and the Royal fleet to support them. They have to come out to forage for supplies for their horses and for their men. And when they do, the continental Marines and others come out of Morristown and they have skirmishes uh, over the course of the winter. During that time, Henry Knox now understands that he has more cannons than he has soldiers to be able to man them. More desertions, more casualties, more terminating enlistments. So he looks around the area and he goes, wait a minute now, those Marines know how to operate ship's cannons. The difference is that a ship's cannon is on a different carriage and it has a bit of a shorter barrel, but very similar to a ground-based cannon that you need the large wheels for maneuverability with and have a little bit longer cannon uh, barrel so that you can get more accurate fire. So Knox very wisely turns to General Washington and says, General, can I please have the Continental Marine Battalion assigned to me to be the Continental Army's Corps of Artillery? Washington approves the plan, and the Continental Marines now become the core of artillery for the Continental Army. They would continue to serve in this role for approximately four months until they were called back to the sea. And it started with Captain Mullen and his company being tasked with escorting prisoners back to Philadelphia, being reassigned to his ship, and then eventually the rest would follow. So uh, by war's end, 231 officers and approximately 2,000 enlisted men had served honorably as Continental Marines, and many more serving as state and soldier Marines. 49 Continental Marines gave their lives in the service of our country, with another 70 being wounded in action. They established a legacy that those of us in uniform today strive to emulate. The operation surrounding the 10 crucial days comp comprised the Marines' first sustained land campaign, but it would certainly not be our last. In every conflict for the last 247 years, Marines have served critical roles, winning new laurels in peace and in war, and their honorable service continues today. Thank you. God bless you all and Semper Fidelis, and I'll be happy to take your questions. Dog just woke up. <laughs> Going back to the early part, when a, a commercial ship was converted to a Navy ship, was it simply a matter of putting guns on the deck rather than um, putting them below deck and creating a, a firing port? That's correct. In fact, uh, the Continental Navy and the Continental Congress made a conscious decision when we built our frigates. Uh, we did not have the manpower or the resources to build uh, large European-like ships of war. 
so what we did is we made a conscious decision to build frigates that maintained their cannons on the, uh, the main decks. And so the original merchantmen, to your question more directly, only put place cannons on the main decks, not below decks. And it all had to do with the center of gravity and how you can maneuver those cannons around. But that is accurate, sir. Other questions? Yes, ma'am. Every division, except the Marines. Do you have any comment on that? So the question that was asked was, this uh, uh, woman understands that every one of the services except the Marine Corps has missed their recruiting missions today. Well, I can say with all confidence that my last assignment before my current one was the Commanding General of Marine Corps Recruiting Command. And yes, we are the only service for two years running now that have successfully accomplished our mission. And that has to do with the ethos of the Marine Corps. We're war fighters. We hold no qualms about why we exist. We exist to win our nation's battle. And our brand, if you will, is tough, elite warriors. So we attract a certain type of young man and woman who know what they're getting in for. And when I meet with young men and women, I ask them, I say, why did you join the Marine Corps? You knew your boot camp was going to be twice as long. You knew you were going to be uh, challenged and asked to do more. You knew you would be sent to austere locations where you had very little support and you would be put in dangerous situations. Why did you choose to become a Marine? And 99.9% .9 of them will answer by saying, because I wanted to be the best. Well, my point to them is if you want to be the best, you have to re-earn that reputation every single day. It all started here with the Continental Marines. And that ethos of what it means to be a Marine is just as strong today as it was back then. Because we rely on our history and tradition and refuse to, uh, to fail to live up to the legacy of those who went before us. So it's that overall mentality of why we exist to defend our great nation that equates to how we attack our recruiting mission as well. We refuse to fail. We will work as long as we need to. And I won't mention what service it was, but once I went and I visited some recruiting stations in a different state, and I looked at the other services display window and they had hours posted on their uh, door. And it said, you know, basically we work from nine to five the recruiter's time on there from this other service. And then I looked at our Marine recruiter's door and they had a similar sign up, but instead of saying nine to five, it said anytime, any place, anytime, any place, anytime, any place for every day of the week, seven days a week, 365 days a year, we accomplish our mission. And I think that is probably the principal genesis is being true to who we are, what we stand for, that still attracts young men and women who want to serve our great nation. When you start dealing with all of the other stuff, you lose your, your place, you lose your focus, you lose your brand, and it confuses people. And they're not sure whether they want to be part of that or not. Answer your question, ma'am. Thank you. Historically, um, when did the concept of the Marines begin? That's a great question, sir. And uh, what we do know is we don't know who the first Marines were, but the concept of Marines goes all the way back to ancient time. The Greeks and the Romans used Marines. Uh, so, for example, the, the strength of the Roman forces was their legions, their soldiers. So in order to exploit that strength, what they did was, in essence, they used soldiers to serve as Marines. And the way they did that is they took their galleys and they had something called a corvus. Think a large plank of wood with a hook at the end of it. And they would row their boats in close proximity to the enemy's uh, ships. And they would drop that corvus and hook the ship in. And then their soldiers would run across that board and basically attack and uh, take over the uh, enemy ship. So those are some of the first Marine-like activities that you could uh, point to in our history. Uh, the museum here has got an exhibit that says that Washington was able to 
ultimately win by avoiding decisive engagements, which sort of implies a certain level of uh, caution. But do you think this campaign that you mentioned exhibits is good judgment in being able to be aggressive in the right circumstances? Absolutely true. So if you didn't hear, the question was uh, Washington had learned to be cautious in fighting the British forces, and he learned some valuable lessons in the New York campaign. He could not, with his American novice army, face the British on open battlefield and use traditional European tactics against them. The, U the Continental Army proved that that's not their desired way of fighting until they had a gentleman named uh, Baron von Steuben who showed up in Valley Forge in 1778 and helped train the American army to be able to fight head to head against a European army like uh, had been done over on the European continent. So Washington was doing what's called the War of Post. He wanted to pick the time and the place of engaging the British only to when it was to his advantage not play into the hand of the British advantage. So as I mentioned, there were those three preconditions that he set in order to take a bold and aggressive stroke. Because what I didn't mention is that uh, out of that 2,500 continentals he had left when he crossed into Philadelphia, excuse me, into Pennsylvania, many of their enlistments were gonna terminate within a week. So the army was gonna cease to exist in great part uh, with that force that he had with him. So he knew he had a very limited time frame to be able to set the conditions and take a bold move. Otherwise, the revolution could be over. And so absolutely. And, and I respect General Washington to the umpteenth degree for his, uh, his courage in being able to make that decision and, and persevere during those very difficult times. Did that answer your question, sir? Thank you. That's all we're going to have time for in terms of questions in the forum. But if you'd like to speak further with General Bohm, he's going to be available to answer any questions you might have and to sign books in the uh, Commonwealth Hall immediately after this talk. Let's give him another round of applause. Thank you very much.